sang along with a lot of that. We remember it well. One of the most interesting things to me is how few of those completely memorable jingles we have anymore. As reach and frequency have become more difficult, the idea of repetition has become harder to achieve. But there's another word that's replaced it recently, and that's this word, consistency. One of the phrases that seems to have taken up permanent residence in the world of benefits that we're being offered as marketers is consistency in our messaging and brand. You see it everywhere. Buy our software and you can enable a consistent brand experience across multiple digital channels. Or our content service guarantees a consistent experience. This class will teach you how you can build consistency into your brand. The art of consistency in branding, it's everywhere. The problem, of course, is that some are mistaking what consistent really means here. Many businesses that we see conflate consistent to mean the same. And so what they do is they try and figure out how to use the same content across every channel going to the lowest common denominator. Imagine the same jingle across Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, the YouTube video, and your website. What a waste. Now, of course, there's a place for that, but as Ralph Waldo Emerson once said so wisely, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Foolish, by the way, is a word that's often left out of that quote, but it's the key word. This hobgoblin gets the better of us marketers when all we do is to aim to deliver the same message everywhere in the name of consistent experiences. Instead, we need to look at the real meaning of the word consistent. It's the effect of the effort that are the result that breeds consistency, not simply repetition. So for marketers, it's about delivering great value consistently over time. And usually in today's world, that means we do something quite different a lot in order to achieve consistent results. And so that's the theme of our show today, consistency. Banging our head against the wall in exactly the same way and delivering the same result, or taking advantage of doing or improving different things to consistently deliver better results. And with that, it's time for me to do as I do and start our little weekly consistency here and whip our creamy batter of a show into a frosting of a different consistency. You ready? Let's roll. And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 139 of PR's This Old Marketing, recorded Saturday, July 9th, 2016. And with me, as always, is my friend, my co-host, my colleague, and the Mr. Consistent of Content Marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? I'm good for, you know, we don't usually record on Saturdays. I this know. Is... I know. It's a Saturday. It's a little, um, it's a little, I, I'm, I'm usually at the gym at this time. <laughs> well, this is so, this is like a workout for your mind. Yes. This no, is yes. much, much go. better. Well, we there have to go. do That's this. It's a good because... rationalization. So I, you're saying I can skip leg day that, today. <laughs> absolutely. You can skip leg day every day. Every day is a non-leg day, in my opinion. Yeah, okay. Um, well, we have to because we have very important meetings next week in, in we Florida. We do have so, very important meetings next week. We have our team meetings, uh, annual team meetings down and somewhere sunny and somewhere where there's there's plenty of drinks flowing. So that'll Yes, be, an undisclosed location. We, we cannot tell you <laughs> where it's at. We don't want uh, we don't want any listeners showing up with the, this old marketing examples in person. But uh, no, looking forward to that. It's going to be great. It's, it's going to be a great time. It'll be fun hanging out with you and the rest of yes. the, the CMI team. The and whole gang and will be there. It should be uh, it should be a lot of fun. So uh, we'll uh, we'll get right to it here. But before we do, uh, we have our show sponsor, our episode sponsor. sponsor again. Our good friends at, at Hrefs, uh, and obviously you and I have seen this tool in action. It's it's a great tool if you want to get found in Google. Uh, understand more about who's linking to you, understand how your competition is being ranked, how you can pull data and sort of sculpt the future 
of your your content marketing editorial program and keyword suggestions and what's the most shared content, all lots of good things. Ahrefs, fascinating tool. Give it a try. They have a 14-day free trial. And if you go to cmi.media slash PNR139A, it is episode 139, right? It is, is that episode correct? 139. Okay. Oh, That's my exactly God. Right. So I got this right. Good. Yeah. CMI.media slash PNR139A. <laughs> and if you do that, PNR listeners get a 30% discount off of the HREFs tool. So thank you to HREFs. Give them a try. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com. Because if you aren't familiar with coding, you know, good old HTML coding, you, you might not even know what HREFs is, right? Sure. You might hyperlink over there I might have a href over to their location <laughs> i remember the first time i ever took a class in html it was where you create um, two little eyeballs and you had to make it so it followed your cursor around oh yeah that was my first well that's not html that's 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 like you you did javascript or something I don't know what it was. They were telling me it was HTML. I just thought it was cool that the little googly eyes were following me around the screen. <laughs> I thought I had I thought I was Picasso. I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have created art. Who does this? This is I funny. can remember so this will this I'm so I'm a little older than you, sadly. Um and I took there was a there was a a course you could take in the mid nineties. Um this is circa nineteen ninety six, nineteen ninety seven that would make you a certified webmaster. And you would take this, and you had to configure a Unix server, and you had to do all this like stuff, including coding HTML. And you would be a certified, and I was a certified webmaster. I still have the book on my shelf. I'm looking at it right now. You know, I never <laughs> got the whole webmaster thing. Like of all <clears throat> titles, why a why webmaster? And then, by the way, that's still a title. Well, it's kind of a title. I see. It, I, I still yeah. see. Hey, people still throw that webmaster thing around like they're in a Dungeons and Dragons game or something I was like that. Say that's the. There's your source. Right there. <laughs> that's your. That's your source. I have twenty hit points on that. Uh, all right, shall we? <laughs> shall we get started? My we friend? shall get to the news. Good. Absolutely. So the first story in our show comes courtesy of Fox Business, which I had to go. What? It's Fox Business, but yes, Fox Business is the source for this story. Um, the headline is the creepy dystopian future of advertising. Um, the article opens up with a quote from Eric Schmidt from uh, Google, of course. And the quote is, we don't need you to type it all because we know where you are. We know where you've been. We can more or less guess what you're thinking about. Is that over the line? Says, so saith, uh, Fox Business, uh, Google Chairman Eric Schmidt. The article then opens up by saying everybody wants to be a somebody when they grow up. You know what I mean, the kind of somebody who is important and influential, somebody who is well-off, well-respected, and well-known. Well, it turns out that may not be such a good idea after all. If you do manage to achieve that lofty position, the article says, you will find yourself in the crosshairs of every advertiser on Earth. I, you know, I've already had problems, but okay. And in the not-too-distant future, they will know everything about you. They will be able to find you anytime, anywhere, like marketing terminators with high-tech targeting capability. They will not stop ever until you are spammed. Goes on to talk about the media, marketing services approaching $1 trillion, the Internet of Things, and basically... I guess what uh, what Doc Searles would call sort of the surveillance-based marketing um, idea, um, sort of a George Orwell future where marketers are sort of surveying every single thing that we do as consumers and going on about this. And, I, you know, I, I mean, I definitely have a take on this, but what, do, what did you think about this article here? Um, well, you mentioned George Orwell. I mean, this is straight out of 1984. So I'm like, well, how Big Brother? This is absolutely. I'm, I'm actually surprised he didn't mention Big Brother or anything like that. But that's right. basically or Blade Runner. Or, yeah, you know, Blade Runner. Right. <laughs> it's exactly what uh, Steve here is talking about in the article. I don't have that negative of a portrayal. I I really would like to think that consumers have a little bit more choice in what we want to engage. Now, granted. You know, let's look at privacy, for example. I mean, we've taken privacy where people just scroll through, oh, yeah, I'll check that off. I agree with your terms and conditions. Everything's good. Privacy obviously isn't the issue that I think it, it used to be or people thought it would be. So maybe right. 
maybe uh, we get to a point where consumers are just like, hey, there's all this wonderful stuff. I'll just tap into everything uh, and that's the way it is. But I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be negative like we're going to be watched at all corners of our house and everywhere we go. Um, I think we will have a choice to say yes. We we do feel like we're in these certain situations. We do want to be uh, communicated with, uh, whether we're leveraging uh, the Internet of Things and everything that we're walking by talks to us and is sending signals. I, I just don't – I'm just not that negative about it. I mean, are you – what do you – what did you take? Well, uh, so <laughs> – the first thing is, is that this guy gives marketing and advertisers way too much credit. <laughs> you know, the, the fact if if marketing teams can get their website updated, they've they've they're they're you know what I mean. It's they're doing pretty good. The idea that they're going to have the technological capabilities to do the kind of surveillance that this guy is talking about is you know is is pretty far out there. There's there's you know with exceptional few, and yeah, Google might be one of them. Facebook might be the other, but those are the two, you know, uh, there, when privacy comes up, there's sort of the, you know, it's often mentioned that there's the four horsemen of privacy or four horsemen of the privacy apocalypse or whatever you want to talk about. And they always talk about Google, Facebook, Apple, uh, and Amazon, and and Amazon, Amazon. exactly right. And, and so, so those companies, you know, accepted, notwithstanding, then, Everybody else in the world, the marketing people of the world and advertisers of the world, most of us, quite frankly, are just trying to figure stuff out with, you know, how to get great stuff in front of people that will persuade them to do things. The you you mentioned the Internet of Things to a marketer and an advertiser, and their eyes roll back in their head and go, "What are you? They're, what are you you might about? as well be talking about the Jetsons." I mean, and, and so it's a we're a long way from that if we ever get there and to your point i think before anybody really gets there the idea of creating something different than advertising and hopefully this idea of content marketing begins to take hold enough to the point where the whole thing evolves into something that's not surveillance based but that quite frankly is value based and that to me is the more interesting pursuit of marketing anyway you know, of course, understanding what consumers do, but quite frankly, this is one of those things where if you ask consumers what they want in terms of privacy and then you ask them separately about what they expect from personalization and and customer care, those two things will often conflict. I had a conversation with somebody one time, then they talked about when I go to Home Depot or I go to Home Depot's website, I want them to know me. I want them to know who I am and know what, that I bought a shovel and that I bought a wheelbarrow and that I should need this. And it should be a personalized experience for me, both in the physical store and in the digital store. And I said, great. I said, you realize then that they're going to have to be able to track you and they're going to have to be able to yeah. assemble data on you, both as you walk through the physical store as well as when you traverse through the digital store. And he said, no, 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 I don't want that. I said, well, you can't have it both ways. You don't get the personalized, customized experience without them being able to know who you are. You just don't get that because guess what? The days of the neighborhood guy when you walk in and goes, you know, hi, Joe, how are you? How are the wife and kids? You don't, that doesn't exist anymore in, you know, in a big box world that we now live in. And so you can't have it both ways. And consumers typically will prefer to give up some of their data to get some of the benefit of personalized service. Yeah, it's more, so, it's more like, hi, Robert, I know a website you were on last night. Well, there's that. <laughs> and you're there's like, don't tell that. anybody. Now, right. And I don't mean to suggest that there's not limits that should be put into place and all of that kind of stuff. And I absolutely you know, you know, know, agree with a lot of those, the privacy types of programs that are starting to take place. You know, I just attended a webinar that my good friend um, uh, Tim Walters did on the GDRP, which is the new European, German specific, you know, sort of uh, ideas of privacy and what can data can get collected, et cetera. So it's fascinating what they're doing over in Europe that we're not doing here in the States. But there are some interesting things that are going on around privacy here in the States that, you know, quite frankly, I just saw an article about how the ANA has just come out against some of the proposals that the FTC um, and the FCC are proposing around data privacy. And and there's some really interesting things going on with privacy right now. But I think when you just simply look at the capabilities that marketing people and advertising people have today, don't give them as much credit as this, an article like this would lend you to believe. Well, you're probably right, because like just for 
Amazon to take an example. They keep marketing my book to me. And you'd think right. that they would know that that's my, my don't right. waste. Exactly. I mean, it makes me feel good. I, I, it does. To be, I mean, maybe that's their goal. It's just like, hey, we, we actually do market your book to other people, Joe. Here it is. Every time you go to Amazon, we're selling you content A. Good for them. Well, so, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, and, and also with Amazon on Facebook and, and Google, you know, you'll see, you know, I bought a product and now I see the ad for that product everywhere I go. It's like, come on, that's just, you know, come on, right? That's, you know, that's not, I just bought it. You know, you should know that. I think that so. the more interesting thing, and this is just a s- subtle misdirection here, but if you just look at Facebook, I think that them creating their own environment including payment structure and including everything that you that you would need from a communication standpoint where you can buy, purchase, search, everything would happen inside their platform. Uh, and they're going to be using a lot of that data to personalize and whatnot, but it's going to be inside. So, I mean, of course, we talked about this, I think, last week where they're trying to say, oh, yeah, there's the Internet for all that other stuff. But really, 95 percent of what you do every day is going to happen inside this thing called Facebook, which really is the Internet. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. Did you? We're not going to cover this on the show today, but did you see this statistic? This statistic blew me away. WPP, which of course is the big, you know, holding company, advertising agency. Yeah. Just they just estimated, and and they said that um, Facebook has now become the number two network. They spent a billion dollars on Facebook for their clients last year. So for them, for spending, they've for spending on their clients, they spent a one. I think it was one point six billion dollars. What's total what's number on one? So that so imagine having a client, right? So Facebook's second biggest client, or or excuse me, the face probably Facebook's biggest client is WPP with a billion dollars. I'm assuming, right? In advertising, I don't I don't know that. That's just what I'm assuming. But the the article was about that. That that was the now the number two. It was number the number two network. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't read all the. That's way fascinating, the though. One is, but it's fascinating, right? How much it dominates everything, and it's just they're still just getting started. I mean, the the growth rates that can you continue to see with Facebook, they haven't really unleashed everything that they could possibly do yet. So if you look yeah. at look at how much go go to. Uh, go to go to Yahoo Finance or go to go to somewhere and, and, and compare Google and Facebook from a market capitalization standpoint, and you'll see how much larger Google is than Facebook and how much Facebook still has to run from right. that standpoint. Oh, there's yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely it's absolutely incredible. I found the article. Um, ba, 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 ba. Google, it's Google. Google is the number one. So WPP last year pumped $1 billion into advertising on Facebook on behalf of its clients, up from $650 million in 2014. Dang. So it doubled, basically doubled. WPP this year expects to place more than $5 billion in advertising with Google, its biggest media relationship. That's crazy. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? That isn't. That's... And, yeah, we'll and put, more we'll to come. Put the link in that, we'll put, that's an ad age article. We'll put that link in the All show All right, put notes. that in. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right, moving on to our next story of the show. This actually comes to us courtesy of Adweek. And speaking of agencies and advertising evolving, um, this is a really fascinating one. The headline is, this ad agency created an ad-free niche cooking magazine. A new magazine hit newsstands this week, the article opens up by saying, a niche cooking magazine called Sous Vide, and the team behind it might surprise you. The cover of Sous Vide's debut issue, while uh, the concept for the magazine came from the company Cuisine Solutions, 95% of the content created for it was composed by creative agency HZDG's content studio. Yes, an advertising agency is behind a new glossy magazine that also happens to be ad-free. As the uh, Sarah Schaefer, who heads up HZDG's content studio, boy, that's just a mouthful of acronyms. Is there something? Is there like Hezediga? Like, is it a name? I'm sure HZDG. I'm going to tell you right now that there's a Hamilton Z. You know, oh, yeah, there's four people Dork, there. You know, yeah. and Grimwald that are the sort of major partners in that something agency. Like that's that. I'm guessing. Anyway. 
As she says, there's a whole new sector of publishing bubbling up within the media landscape. There are a whole new stable of magazines that are focused on enthusiast audiences and hyper-niche subject matter. Uh, People are changing the way content is produced and consumed, so I don't think producing an ad-free magazine should be that shocking to us, as she says. Um, Well, what did you think, Joe? Is Is this shocking? Is it news? What do you think? You know, the article was fine. (laughs) <laughs> the, it was it was just fine. It was fine writing. You guys get the code there, folks, right? You get the, you understand the code there. I mean, I understand why we're covering it because this is right. an agency that is creating custom content on behalf of the client called Cuisine Solutions. But basically, I don't. This is not, this is a non news story. If you go back, go and look at uh, you know whether you're you're looking at Southwest Airlines magazine or, or Ritz Carlton or about a thousand other magazines, media properties out there, they're all produced by agencies. Now, is it news that an advertising agency is behind this? No, I really well, don't think you so. Go. There you go, right? I, 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 but I don't, I don't think it is now, today. Maybe five years ago, it was. I mean, if you, if you said, okay, custom publishers have been doing this forever. I mean, when I started working at Penton in 1990. Well, I'm sorry. I started working at Penton in 2000, but in 1994, they started their custom media division and that's all they did was custom magazines and and 95 percent of the content was produced by the publisher so if the i mean let's be honest they didn't really start doing it until you arrived oh that's completely don't say that there's a lot of really (laughs) smart people that started it i had nothing i i was dragging on the coattails of of i like to stir up trouble oh yeah that's really gonna get me in trouble for that one but i don't think any of those smart people listen to this podcast so we're probably (laughs) that too we're probably in luck with it so okay (laughs) So let's say the story here is that an advertising agency is starting to look at content marketing as a revenue stream. But I still think it's – I don't think this is news. That's – is that what you're th- thinking? Okay. We've well, had, so here's, we had many here's different what I types think. of agencies. I think the do reason this. that it's newsed in Adweek is because that an agency did it, right? I mean, and so you start to see, you know, this is just yet another data point on our journey between where agencies and publishing companies are starting to collide because how many times in the last six months have we covered a story where a publisher launches an ad, a content studio, right? And, and that looks very much like an agency. Um, Interestingly, those those articles are rarely covered in the ad, uh, you know, focused magazines like an Ad Week or an Ad Age or those kinds yeah. of things. They're mostly we cover them out of the Wall Street Journal or or you know other other elements. Sometimes they come from those, but most of the time they're coming from other elements. Other than that, this I think is a trade magazine, Ad Week, certainly a trade magazine, saying basically, look, an ad agency is doing something weird. Let's cover it. That's that's why I think it's news in Ad Week. And I think it's, for me, the interesting thing here is not necessarily the news itself, but the way they're covering it. The way, But because they're saying, here's an ad agency doing something interesting and new and innovative, that of course you, coming from the publishing world, say, what? Duh. This has been going on for a million years. We've been doing this since 1994. Why is this news? Well, this is the this is two worlds colliding, I think. And and you know, the the interesting thing to me here is that if if we can see, you know, if we sort of extrapolate out the future here, this is clearly them saying, "Hey, listen, the world is changing. This is ad agencies now saying, hey, the world is changing. In fact, the head of their contents to the Huzdaga says this. We're, <laughs> we're changing the way, you know, this is this is changing. And you're on the sidelines going, um, no, it's not. We've been doing this for years. And by the way, publishers are now starting these content agencies and, and, and studios and saying, hey, the world is changing and we're starting this stuff. And the agencies are going, um, no, it's not. We've been doing this for yeah. years. And so there's there's a really interesting collision happening in slow motion here, and that's what I think is the interesting. Well, that makes sense because even last week, I mean, I think the title of our podcast last week was something about media companies, brands, and agencies are starting to all look alike. I mean, that's yes. that's really yeah, that's that's basically what this is. So I get it that you're saying the story is that Ad Week is covering this like it's a new thing. That's the story. I yeah, I guess I see that now. But I read this and I'm like, what? I mean, because I mean, we, we, how long have you and I been doing presentations for agencies and media companies basically saying, look, you've got PR agencies, creative agencies, interactive agencies, advertising agencies, custom content agencies, publishers all doing the same things. 
Right. We, I mean, this is not, not new, but I guess for ad week, it is. Yes. So, exactly. So in that and case, for it's agencies, fine. And for New York Madison Avenue focused agencies, this is a new thing. And if they continue so to I, do it beyond nine to 12 months, yes. If it's a, not well, like a campaign type that's, thing. Well, exactly right. And which, so, which actually, I hats off, by the way, we're not even talking about it, but just another example, this Cuisine Solutions, who... Uh, who who are using the the content studio to do this? I mean, they're they've got a you know they they sell products and services for chefs, for uh, professional chefs, for home chefs. Um, so this is a you know a nice custom publication for them, and it's an interesting yeah. distribution is- strategy that they're going inside like a Trader Joe's and distributing in this publication. I don't know about the nine ninety nine price tag on it. I would well. They're making it exclusive, right? They're making it like a, an elite sort of, you know. Which there's if if there's a strategy behind that that's not simply trying to cover costs. I like it. I like I like making it expensive. I like I like making it like making it a you know. It's it's a very it, theoretically again. I'm assuming a strategy behind this, but it makes it a very targeted persona. Yes, if, if that's who they're going for, I. I'm I'm under the assumption that there's another dip distribution strategy there. I'd love to see them. I mean, maybe they've got some uh, tighter integrations with the Trader Joe's and just putting it on the newsstand. I d- it doesn't sound like it is, right? But yes. I, I, with well, here's the other thing: there are a lot of magazines. This is not ju- the only magazine that targets this audience on the newsstand. Maybe no, of course not. maybe yeah. it is in Trader Joe's. I don't know. But if you go to a regular newsstand, there's a lot of these publications. So. I don't know if there's enough of a tilt here to get attention and break through that clutter. And then you're putting a $10 price tag on it, which is probably double what everything else is on the newsstand. So, well, hey, and especially at a Trader Joe's, yeah. right? Well, yeah. Trader Joe's. Well, the Trader Joe's like like $10 is really like $4 to everyone else, right? <laughs> I'm just going to leave that. Yeah, <laughs> just left that right there. Maybe we we'll move on now. Before I love Trader Joe's. I love they get they have great blue chips. I don't know how they, they make them blue, but man, they're good. Dude, well, some of the fro. Well, anyway, we don't want to rant about Trader Joe's. Let's just move on to our next story All here. Right. Um, this one comes to us from the bulldogreporter.com, although they're covering a study that is a little separate here. And the headline is branding, keeping up with customers, not competitors, is becoming the greatest challenge to brands. The article opens up by saying high performers are using digital to drive higher customer experience value. There's that word again, customer experience. As customer expectations are becoming liquid, as the article opens up, and changing at lightning pace, more than 9 in 10 companies are struggling to deliver digital customer experiences that exceed their customers' expectations, according to a new study from Accenture Interactive that reflects the huge challenge that brands are facing. The study expectations versus experience, the good, the bad, and the opportunity is based on a survey of 702 customer experience decision makers from companies in 14 countries. While 52% of all respondents said that they're ahead of their competitors at providing digital customer experiences, only 7% said their company exceeds the expectations of their actual customers. Another 67% stated that they quote unquote meet these expectations. So did you have a, I mean, I have a, I have a take on this. this, I mean, you are Mr. Experience. Experiences. So I'm going to leave this in your hands, but I just want this. I was looking at this wonderful chart where they say that 67, what is it? Only 7% of the people that took this survey uh, feel that they're exceeding their customers' expectations. See, I look at this, you, you, it's all in how you spin it, right? I mean, right. You, you look at this and you say, well, 74% of companies meet or exceed customer expectations. You could have said that. And it could have been a really positive article. But now you're coming and you're saying, no, 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 we're doing terrible because it's just 7%. I'm just like, boy, you got to really, people, you know, don't just look at numbers and headlines. Just you got to read through. So I I would like to get Mr. Experience, Mr. (laughs) CX himself, I would like to, uh, to get your take on this article. My take on this article is, well, okay, so look. The, uh, what I'm really speaking to is the study here rather than the article. The, and the, I think, the, the Accenture, so it's 
an Accenture interactive study. Okay. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, um, it's one of those things where they do go through some of the other, the other findings there, right? So, you know, where they're, where they're, you know, they talk about how customer experience mastery drives business benefits. Um, and, you know, they go through a couple of the different, different, you know, sort of high level access to, um, the actual, the, you know, the actual study itself. And then they actually do link, to the um, to the to the actual um, customer experience study that Accenture did here, and so well, so here's the thing: uh, you can actually Forrester actually did another uh, another piece of this, right? So they Forrester has been covering this, and they actually Forrester is actually who Accenture worked with on the actual study, which isn't really covered in the article. But if you actually go through to the white paper that that covers this. Forrester is is it actually comes out of Forrester Consulting, which is a little different than Forrester Research, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so, the 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 key here is is that one of the, I think to your point, you could read this in a couple of different ways. Is that one customers? The, I guess my main thing is the meet or exceed expectations is just a flawed way to look at things. Yeah, because especially from the inside looking out, because. The customer expectation, one of the things that the report talks about has how customer expectations have have risen so much in the last few years and how the expectations have. So what does meeting or what does exceeding expectations mean? If we're looking to be customers are not looking to have something exceed their expectations. The whole the challenge with exceeding expectations is we don't know understand what the word expectation means. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like my expectation is is that my expectations will be exceeded. That's my expectation. My expectation is is that I will get more than I ask for. Is that meeting or exceeding my expectations? And so the whole the whole thing about looking at it this way is to me sort of a simply just a it's a it's a trojan horse for being able to tell a story around okay how do we actually look at this about the performance of brands overall and a Forrester research study actually did a pretty comprehensive look at customer experience and found that quite frankly from the customer's point of view not from those who are creating the experiences from the customer's point of view most brands are failing at it pretty badly um, and I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the show when we were talking about this idea of, you know, where wh- what we're actually, you know, what we're actually doing in advertising and marketers and, and, and our capabilities for doing things. Most brands and this is anecdotal at this point, most brands that I speak with are quite frankly, really struggling to optimize digital customer experiences for customers, really struggling at it. If you ask them, they'll say, well, yeah, we're, tr- we're trying as best we can, and we believe we're meeting our customers' expectations when it comes to digital content experiences. But quite frankly, from the customer's point of view, they're not. They're, they're actually struggling at it mightily. And not so I guess the overall, I totally agree with the headline here. Branding is the keeping up with the customers, not the competitors becoming the constant challenge. And so... I don't know that the data, certainly in the article or the data in the paper, truly supports that idea. Um, but I do believe that the that other research that I've seen and other data that I've seen absolutely does support that. It's, it's something that you've heard me say in, in workshops all the time is that customers, we as customers, as consumers, have adapted to this new digital world that we live in. You know, you see babies swiping magazines now because they're broken we use our phones to do shopping and showrooming where we go in and look at a product and scan it to see if we can get it cheaper on Amazon Prime. We know how to deal with this and marketing operations, quite frankly, have not evolved as quickly. And so the marketing operations from a technical standpoint and from an operational and process standpoint in many ways still operate like they did in the early days of technology or even pre-technology. It's amazing to me how many different companies are still struggling with the basics of digital technology and digital transformation. And so it's really about us keeping up with the demands and expectations, if you want to use that word, of our customers, not the competitors, because that's what's making us fall behind in delivering optimized customer experience. You know, and looking at the some of the the reason, rationale at the at the end of this I'm on the Accenture interactive site they talk about you know people and skills we, you know 
we don't necessarily might not necessarily have the people for this. They don't have the skills. We don't have a strong internal collaboration uh, between the. We're not agile enough. Uh, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm I'm completely reading through the lines with this one, that we if if an, a large enterprise doesn't align their compensation uh, and how they're going to structure. Um, these individual groups that are all working with the same, you're all working on the same customer, but you're all doing different things. PR, demand gen, communications, everybody's looking at that, but they're all compensated differently. Most, you know, you, you talk to a lot of different groups. When I usually go in, I'm talking to a demand generation uh, group, it seems to be. And those people are very much compensated on short-term goals. I need to get as many of these things through as fast as possible, and then I'm going on and I'm churning and I'm working through these things. They're not necessarily compensated for the entire journey and really getting in depth and on a, in in depth understanding of the customer. That's from what I see most customer most uh, brands are doing right now, and I don't think any of this is going to change. I think it's going to get dramatically worse until we get at least how we're compensating people on the same page. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but I, I totally agree with that. No, I absolutely agree with that. It's, it's, it speaks to the strategic nature of marketing right now in, in many businesses, you know, um, Jay Bayer and I had this, this conversation at content marketing world last year, you know, because you know, Jay, he's his new book, hug your haters. Um, and, and his real focus now on customer service, which truly is customer experience, um, is, is this idea, you know, now he's focusing a lot on social and how dealing with customers and, and especially those who sort of rag on your business after they have a bad experience, um, and how you can take advantage of that as a, as a, as a truly optim, optimizing point for your business strategy. And it's a great book, by the way, if you guys haven't read it, it's wonderful. And what he's talking about, but he and I talked about this, you know, cause I'm a marketing practitioner and I, you know, as, as a marketing guy, I'm always grabbing, you know, I'm in empire building mode all the time. And so I think it should be a marketing function. And he was saying, well, this idea should really be a customer service function. And we both agree, but it's just coming at it from two different angles that, you know, in a way marketing is becoming more customer service and customer service is becoming more marketing. Both of the lines of that optimizing the buyer's journey are really, really blurring here. How, you know, you know this, how many more customer service people we actually see at content marketing world every oh, year. Oh, absolutely now, true. You know, yeah. and, and so coming in and learning about how creating these content driven experiences are really optimizing loyalty, upsell, cross-sell, stickiness with the customers, and so on and so forth, average sales price and all these different metrics, we often focus on the, the top-of-the-line lead generation and awareness metrics, but truly content marketing is driving so much more in terms of value for the business. And really what that speaks to is a much more strategic position for something, right? Whether we call it marketing or customer service or content marketing or just increasing the strategic value and to your point, the pay and, and pay scales of those people within the business, the elevation of those people in the business, that's that's truly the answer here. Well, I think that, uh, of course, customer service and marketing need to be aligned, but I think that I don't know if I'm siding with you or Jay. I think I'm siding with you. I think customer service needs to be under marketing. You'd be siding with me there, but yeah. I, I mean, I don't think Jay, I don't know that Jay would disagree or No, or agree. I don't think Jay I don't, cares. I don't know. It would be a fun They would just be a need to discussion. be on the same. I mean, marketing as a service. I mean, Jay talks about marketing as a service. He's been talking about that forever. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, all right. Exactly. Well, now speaking of service and speaking of wonderful marketing, we have a delightful sponsor to talk about absolutely we would uh of course we had a new sponsor last week episerver they're back again for more welcome to the circus and they are offering episerver is offering a fantastic new ebook for pnr listeners called of course this is right up your alley robert four steps to simplify the digital experience there it is. That's, that's right. That. Again, it just keeps that, that experience it's just word. So it's just like, almost like we, it's almost like we planned it. We I, didn't, but we, it's almost like we did. I wish there was a, there really needs to be a book uh, out there called Experiences. <laughs> I wish there was. Anyways, as a, as a digital marketer, 
we face both external and internal challenges from declining we organic do. reach we do. on social to software issues that saps your team's productivity. At the same time, you are tax- tasked with managing content that increases lead count, boosts sales, or raises customer loyalty. In this guide, we go through the four fundamental steps of the digital customer experience. Each step is accompanied by concrete examples to help you with your customer's digital experience. If you download this guide, Four Steps to Simplify the Digital Experience, you will learn how to increase organic traffic acquisition on desktop and mobile, decrease the bounce rate for first-time visitors, and improve your digital marketing through smarter content management. Download this excellent resource today at cmi.media slash pnr139b. That's cmi.media slash pnr139b. And thanks again to our new friends at Episerver for sponsoring PNR This Old Marketing. Absolutely. Yay. Thank you for that. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. It's always it's always it's nice so nice. Thing. It's so it's nice, so nice. nice thing. It's a nice thing. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that uh, makes us feel the same like over and over and over like we're banging our head against the wall or different like things are consistently different where we're looking at different wonderful things um and making us feel inspired and so let's see i have the tom so i am first all right am i that is correct you're up first okay well let's um it's funny i ask that every single show and it's like it's like you would think 139 episodes in i would actually get that i don't think so i think it's gonna be (laughs) at least 100 more I think I think so. Yeah, I'm gonna figure it out one day. Um, okay, so I have I don't know if it's a rave or a rant. I quite frankly, because the article is great, and I'm so I, it's a rave about the article, but it's a little bit of a I guess a rant at the end. And I don't know I'll let the let you guys decide here. So the article that we'll link to in the show notes comes from the Guardian, um, and it's uh, it's just a it's it's a really really wonderful uh, article that it's short. It's not a it's not a long read at all. It's written by Patricia McDonald, who is the chief strategy officer at Isobar, um, an agency, um, and uh, it's just a, a I thought a really good article, but it sort of spurred me in a direction, and. It there is there is a meta level here that I'm not going to get into, but if you choose to sort of see the meta level in here about things that are going on in the world right now, then that's you know certainly your prerogative. the uh, The headline of the article is "The Attention Economy and the Demise of the Middle Ground," um, and the article opens up by saying basically, um, sometime in the last five years, attention has become the only currency in town. She says, we might argue it's always been this way since the dawn of time. From stunts to snake oil and slogans have all had their place. But with the advent of social media, online news, content, eyeballs, and attention are everything. We exist in a race for clicks, which reward the extreme at the expense of the erudite, um, the controversial over the considered. Uh, By the way, to her her writing here is just so spot on. It's just really, really good writing. And so that's one of the reasons I love it so much. Um, anyway, so she goes on to sort of talk through, she does mention politics. She'd mentioned sort of how Donald Trump has really dominated the news cycle through his use of content and the way that he's sort of operated. She makes no comment on, on Trump one way or the other, but she talks about his success in sort of driving the extreme rather than some, uh, some sort of considered middle ground there. She goes on to talk about a, a number of different things, but she ends on a marketing note, which I thought was, and this is what sort of spurred me on to, to, to my rant or rave or whatever it is. She says, basically, finally, for all of us involved in creating and publishing content, Perhaps there's a lesson about underestimating our audience. We hear a lot about ever-diminishing attention spans and the need to instantly engage the swipe right generation whose brains have been reshaped on a diet of Twitter, Tinder, and Snapchat. She says, so perhaps rather than delivering on those expectations, we should raise them. Perhaps rather than ruthlessly simplifying, we could believe that our audiences can cope with complexity. As she closes out her article, she says, if you can follow the plot of Game of Thrones, there's a decent chance you can follow the pros and cons and ins and outs of a richly nuanced political question. And I just, I loved the way she phrased that. I just thought that was just tremendously uh, helpful and valuable and, and wonderfully phrased. And so when I start thinking about marketing and content and content publishing, 
It's just, I see this so often. And in fact, I got finished with a client a couple of weeks ago where this is their big problem. They have just, quite frankly, created so many projects that are doing nothing other than creating snackable content. They're creating no meaningful information, no meaningful content. It's all about social. It's all about snackable. It's all about short listicle blog posts. And they think they're doing really well. And they're not. They're, 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 they're getting more followers. They're getting more, they get engagement on social media, but they're not doing anything for the business. And in today's world, I think in many cases, marketing has become a wash with hashtags and sound bites and videos and platitudes and bumper stickers and all these things that disappear and this bumper sticker oriented marketing that creates engagement but is measured in milliseconds. It's simple, it's cheap, it's easy. We can do it in real time, we can newsjack it, and it's so entirely uninteresting and ineffective for the business. It's small marketing. It's classically what I call marketing at the cubicle level. Um, and in many cases, we're just simply forgetting, or in other cases, abdicating, that we can actually expect more of our audience today, even if they're just shopping for a fruity beverage. And I hope one of the lessons that we can take as marketers, not only from this article, but just from everything else that's going on in the world today, is to not just elevate our conversation, because that's just an elitist kind of way of saying that we need to get more complex. No, I think we can simply expect more out of our audiences. We can expect, uh, as she said, if you can follow the plot of Game of Thrones, you can follow political questions. And what I would say is, if we think our audiences have the capacity to use our product or service effectively, then perhaps we can assume that they can enjoy something more than a snackable piece of content. And that's, yeah, that's the end of my rant or rave or whatever it is. Very nice. Um, I actually have a comment on the article, but it has it's not with the content. It's with the setup here at The Guardian. Do you mind if I uh, comment I on this know. a little yeah, bit? Please. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, but this is from the Media and Tech Network. And I noticed it right away because it's site-dominated by Outbrain. And it says to the left, it says, supported by Outbrain. This, this article is supported by oh, Outbrain. I didn't even see that. Now, I didn't even now see wait, that. wait. This is interesting. So this is just goes to our native advertising discussion and labeling. Yeah. So it says at the bottom... All Guardian Media and Tech Network content, which is what you just read, is editorial independent except for pieces labeled paid for by. Find out more here. So I go and I click to, and they've got, so they have two delineation, delineations for their content. One is supported by and one is paid content or paid for by. So paid for by is simply somebody else paid for it. It uh, the, the person that paid for it had control over the that from the advertiser. It's, it says that, and they label it that way. Now, supported by, which is what your article came from, is editorial independent, but they but it was funded by a client. So this is, oh, interesting. isn't this interesting? So basically, say, in the bottom of the example is, we received a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help support Guardian's global development site. Bill and Melinda Gates doesn't have any formal say over what they cover or how they do it, but they're funding it. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. So, yeah, that's interesting. So basically what this is saying is, is that Outbrain sponsored this section, but the, but the content itself is editorially independent. That's exactly right. What do you think about that? that? That's a cool way to do Isn't it, that actually. something? Yeah. You basically go out. I mean, it's an interesting way to get revenue for editorial where you're saying, look, we'd really like to cover... Uh, you know, this series of content on technology and media, but we don't have the funds. Would you like to support? And here's what you get. And by the way, they get total site domination in this. They've got ads on the top, on the side, yeah, inline content. That's right. And the other thing is, is that for this network, they actually have an individual newsletter that you can sign up for just to receive the media. And to, I know that's not a new thing, but it's just interesting how, how uh, Guardian is doing this. So just thought i'd share that it was interesting that's, no that's fantastic i mean i think what it also speaks to is the fact that i loved the content the content was good and valuable and i really liked it and kind of, quite frankly didn't care that it was sponsored or didn't or quite frankly didn't notice it's so it's actually i think there's uh, this is an interesting model that publishers could use and yeah. say look what no, the guardian is doing yeah. all right all right so uh i don't know if this is a rant or rave but you know same thing. We don't even know this stuff anymore. We just start to spew. <laughs> we're just we're just, we're just we're just spewing right. stuff. So so Robert, I think <laughs> I think you know this already, but I've been infatuated with the stock market 
you know, most of my life. I started. <laughs> yes, I know. I st- you're, there's stock. You're, you're infatuated with the stock market and casinos, and so I, I'm yes, not going to draw are, any correlation yes, there. But it's, it's, maybe, uh, <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, well, for those of the, you that don't know, I don't even know if you knew this, Robert. Maybe you did. I started an, an investment club in 2001 with a group of friends. I didn't know so, that. Yeah, we kept it running for Learned something new about for well partner. over a decade, and and uh, and every month or so, I continue. I pick up a new book on investing and trading just to stay sharp and I enjoy it. I enjoy the, the content. Um, nice. So I recently picked up this book called High Probability Trading by Marcel Link. And now this is an older book. It's from 2003. But I just had to share some of the similarities as it pertains to creating a content marketing strategy. Of course, I look at everything with a, with a <laughs> right content marketing lens, lens rose-colored mm-hmm. glasses, if you will. So um, the book starts with this. It says, trading is easy. Anyone can do it. Making money, however, is a whole different ballgame. A simple fact of trading is that almost 90% of all traders lose money. The author goes on to ask, why is there such a high percentage of losing traders? It's almost just like the discussion we had on experience, actually. So much like how we at CMI ask, you know, why so many marketers are failing at content marketing, Marcel is asking the same thing about these traders. Now, in the first chapter, the author uses this example. Let's take the book, How to Make Money Performing Vascular Surgery Using Household Tools and Kitchen Utensils. (laughs) I don't think people would read, read, and I'm reading from the author here, I don't think people would reach uh, such a book with the expectation, would read such a book with the expectation of being able to do open heart surgery out of their garages in their spare time, yet people go into trading insert content marketing here, with little or no experience and expect to succeed after reading a book or two. Now, as I'm reading the book, the author goes through what separates good traders from bad traders. And I've outlined a few here, and I love these. So number one is budget. It says the more money a trader starts out with and commits to trading, the higher the likelihood for success. Those traders that start with smaller budgets take unnecessary risks because they have to and generally fail. So I thought that was interesting if you make that correlation to content marketing. Number two, think small. Smart traders make small bets and limit risks risk they don't bet everything in on one stock number three this is probably the most important one they write down their strategy successful (laughs) traders limit themselves to one market and have a written down strategy most times in a journal that defines why they make the trades what success looks like they detail their mistakes and successes and constantly refer to the journal to improve themselves Every trade is outlined in the journal, and each trade has a why. Why did you make that trade? And if you don't have a good reason for it, it's most likely a mistake, one which you should not repeat. In addition, each trade has a profit goal, so you know what success looks like. I absolutely love this, Robert. That's cool. Because that's awesome. isn't this that's, something? Like, what if you that, did I mean, that for with a trading geek like you? That's well, that's really I'm, cool. I'm, stuff. I'm thinking at it just from a content marketing standpoint. If you yeah, did no, this, no, exactly. it's the same thing. So basically, it goes on and says, above all, once you have the plan in place and an adequate budget, most traders won't see success until after three or more years. It takes wow. time to become a great trader and make money on a consistent basis, and the first three years is just like going to school, of course. <laughs> and we've talked about how long it takes to get really good at this stuff in content marketing. So sure. as I reflect, you know, just to sum up this whole thing, if we reflect on what it means for content marketing, is the, the, the approach of content marketing is just like many other practice areas like trading and there should be a written down plan that is reviewed often and once the direction is chosen and you move forward why for every exactly or a while you'll make many mistakes and you won't perfect the art for many years but you keep moving forward and keep following your your strategy so it's just i just loved it i I had to i had to share that yeah it's so I love great examples from other industries. It's just such a great way to learn. Well, and next week we'll talk about technical investing. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie. Start a podcast. Eddie, who? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Joe's trading tips. Trading for dummies. Hi, welcome to Joe's trading tips. Exactly. Buy low, sell high. Oh, all right. So you have uh, you have this old marketing, my friend. I do have this old marketing. Yes, indeed. And so, uh, first of all, a huge hat tip here to Casey Boyce, um, who sent this uh, this over Twitter. On Twitter, he is at Casey Boyce. Um, he got a, a lovely handle there for himself. Um, and so, this comes from one of my favorite places on the planet, Hawaii. 
Um, and the Hawaii Electric Company. Um, And when he sent this over, I ended up going and doing a little research into the company itself, and there's quite a bit there, actually. Fascinating history of the company. Um, Started in 1891 um, as the the then separate country, of course, um, basically was uh, was just getting started, getting up and running with modern technologies and like electric power. Um, And they had 2,500 customers on the island of Oahu in 18... Um, uh, over the first 15 years of the company's existence. So by 1914, um, they had started some service out to all the other parts of the island. Um, and they're making all sorts of things in addition to, and this is what fascinates me, is they're not just providing electricity, but they're also making electrical products like refrigerators and flat irons and stuff like that. And so they were not only creating the electric power, but they were creating the things that would actually consume the electric power. And where the content marketing comes into this is uh, the basically in 1926, they started their home services department, creating all these wonderful appliances um, and started demonstrating the benefits of using these electrical appliances in an auditorium of the, you know, in the basically Hawaiians, the the electrics, the historic King Street building is this big building in, in Oahu there. And so the popularity of these demonstrations brought these huge audiences. So people would come in and learn about all these wonderful electrical appliances that would make their home life better, that would make um, managing their home, you know, more easy and et cetera, et cetera. And one of them, of course, as the technology started to grow, they included television and then you know they would demonstrate TVs here and uh, among other things and irons and ovens and you know stoves and all sorts of stuff and they basically built it up and built it up and built it up to the point where it was actually um, the uh, in the events were held in this thing called the Kaiser Dome which is now known as the Hilton Hawaiian Village Dome um, and basically is this huge sort of um, auditorium sized place so it just grew and grew and grew in popularity then what I love here is and this just course it goes right to the Content Inc. model. They had the one platform, which was the physical platform. In 1995, they basically repurposed the whole thing and stopped doing it as a physical event and started doing it as a TV show. Oh, my God. And so then it sort of became a cooking program on TV show um, in the auditorium itself. And then they had live people there, but they turned it into a TV show for television audiences. And they did, uh, and you know, recipes and they did all sorts of stuff and basically um, uh, really popularized the idea of how not only how to use these electrical appliances, but the best practices in using them. So how do you cook better stuff using this all this stuff? The television show went for 10 years till 2005. Um, and then they now have op- pivoted again. They stopped the TV show, but now they have what they call their food connection with the community, and they publish all these recipes now in a monthly newsletter, uh, which is a weekly column in the advertising um, section of the, the major newspaper there and on, of course, their website. So just a great example of a company sort of modifying its distribution method, getting really good at one platform, and, and a wonderful example of this old market. That's fascinating. I love how they started. I could just see as the television and all these new technologies came out, everybody would get excited and go down there and see it in person. It's just so, and this is the electric company doing this, right? So getting everybody, and you, you, know, and you can figure out why, right? Because there was probably no big manufacturers there. And so who was making the electrical appliances? Well, they decided to take it upon themselves to, you know, they create, you know, create the, you know, create the hardware. Basically, they had the software. They just needed the hardware to consume the electricity. I wonder if, uh, do you know anything about like if they were putting those in person on where where you had manufacturers that were underwriting, like saying, hey, do my like show mine off, Mike? I don't. I did not have time to sort of dig into the details of the actual shows themselves. Um, but it would be it would be a fascinating question, actually, is over time if the brands themselves started to underwrite some of that stuff. Well, that's on our other podcast where we really break down this old marketing <laughs> exam. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we have an investing. It's we have a it's technical investing right podcast. Joe's trading we tips: have. buy low, sell high. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So uh, so I'll see you in a couple of days, my friend. So that'll you, be fun. I will see you in a couple of days, yeah, in the, in the lovely undisclosed location yes. where there will be plenty of cocktails and, and sunshine. We'll be warm. That's all we can tell you. So we're yes. looking forward we to will it. Be all right. Definitely well, well warm. Safe, safe travels, my friend. And uh, thank and we'll you very you much. And, and you as well. And for those of you, have a wonderful, wonderful week because that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And if you like this episode number 139, do consider subscribing, won't you, on iTunes or Stitcher.com or leaving us a show review. If you haven't done so yet, please do that. And if you do leave us a show review, let us know through Twitter that we that you gave us such a wonderful, positive review. We would love to thank you personally. If you do a negative review, don't let us know because, quite frankly, I don't want to read it. Okay, that's how much we appreciate you, the listeners of our little podcast here. And, of course, story ideas, story ideas, story ideas. We love them through the old Twitter hashtag, this old marketing. Let us know. We would love to feature your story on the show. And if you've got a question or just don't like the Twitter or you like email, send us an email. This old marketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes, which publish on Monday night in the actual show itself. And of course, in more lovely, full technicolor context on the show post on thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.